If you are a guest to our church, welcome. Welcome to First Baptist Church of Thibodeau. Let us know how we can assist you in any way we can. And if you're a member, know that we are praying for you guys. Let us know how we can continue to pray for you, okay? As Dina read through the text, we will only focus on verses 1 through 23. 1 through 23. And I titled this sermon, The Faith of a Mustard Seed. The Faith of a Mustard Seed. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, our Lord Jesus said, And he said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will be moved, and nothing will be impossible for you. The question we need to ask ourselves, even in that very definition, as Jesus is speaking, what is little faith? You see, little faith, and I define little faith as tangible faith, faith that you hold in your hand, faith that you can see. For example, if you are praying for something that God could protect you, but yet you see God's protection right here. You're praying for healing, but at the same time, you see it right here, right? There, tangible faith is faith that you say to yourself, well, I really don't need God much for this. I don't have to trust God. I don't have to necessarily depend on God much for this. That's tan tangible faith. You only believe in God when you have something in your hand, when its provision is already being made. That's tangible faith. And we notice the life of the disciples when Jesus is talking to them, they had to some degree tangible faith. That's why Jesus rebuked them and said, you of little faith. But then he says to them, you need to have the faith of a mustard seed. And what is the faith of a mustard seed? It is a small faith, but powerful enough to move mountains. It is persistent faith. It is the faith that jo Jacob had when he said to the angel, when he said to God, I will not let go. It is the faith of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18 who prayed and prayed and went to this particular unrighteous judge. And as she is going to the unrighteous judge, she wants justice. And she kept going over and over and over again. It is the persistent faith of the neighbor who someone came to his house, a guest came to his house late at night, and he wants food, so he knocks and he knocks, and he knocks on his neighbor's door to get food. Shows a sense of persistency. This is the faith of a mustard seed. Small but powerful. And the object of this faith is God. It is believing in a big God who can do great things. And in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 1 through 23, we see a faith of a mustard seed in the life of Jonathan. Jonathan. We see his heart of trust, persistency, and yet a great love for God. Jonathan's faith here is contrasted with his father, Saul. If you notice very carefully, you can see how Jonathan had great faith, but then you notice as well how Saul had little faith. And the author wants you to see this. 
This morning, I want us to examine Jonathan's faith, and I want us to notice four aspects of his faith. What are they? Notice with me very carefully. Point number one is the conduct of his faith. The conduct of Jonathan's faith. The conduct of faith. We see this in verses two through three. Two, the conviction of faith. The conviction of faith. We see this in verses 1 and 4 through 6. And 3, the boldness of faith. The boldness of faith. We see this in verses 7 through 15. And 4, the rally of faith. Faith is so infectious. Genuine faith will rally others to have faith in God. And this is exactly what we see in Jonathan from verses 16 through 23. I pray that you're ready to engage. I pray that you're ready to dive into the word of God. This morning, I pray that the view of faith here, Jonathan's faith, my prayer is it would challenge your faith. Challenge your faith. So please be very introspective. Ask yourself this question. Do you have little faith, faith tangible faith, or do you have the faith of a mustard seed? Do you see Jonathan's faith as your faith. So join me as I pray for us. Father, we are in desperate need of you to move in our lives. We live in a world today where we are constantly challenged and our faith is constantly challenged. But God, the one who wills the seed, the, the faith of a mustard seed, we, we see or they see the challenges around them as a great way to depend on God even more. So God, you allow these challenges to come into our lives to grow our faith even more. The faith of a mustard seed is a faith that continues to grow. It grows and it grows and it grows as it depends upon God. It never gives up. It never quits. So God, I pray that you teach us what we do not know. Make us what we are not and give us what we do not have. We ask all of this in Jesus' mighty and precious name. And God's people said, amen, amen. The first point here is the conduct of faith. The conduct of faith. Do you notice how the author of 1 Samuel loves to do contrast and comparison? As we're walking through the book of uh, Samuel, we can see it. He, he started with Eli, and then he, he showed us the contrast with, with um with Hannah and her prayers. Then he shows us the contrast with Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, as opposed to that of Samuel. Also in chapter 3, there's a contrast with Eli and Samuel again, that Samuel was next to the Ark of the Covenant, but then Eli was in a chamber, but yet God spoke to Samuel and not Eli. So there's constantly this contrast and comparison throughout 1 Samuel. And here he uses the same approach to show us a very important point. But the contrast here is between father and son. So he calls up Saul and he shows us Saul's tangible, weak faith. And then right next to it, in juxtaposition to that, he shows us Jonathan's great faith. Jonathan's great faith. But first, notice Saul's weak faith. We have a picture of it throughout 1 Samuel, 
But here he wants to show you even more about Saul's faith. What else are we told? We are told where he was staying, if you notice very carefully. In verse 2, it says that he was in the caves, right? Like, like Saul himself was so afraid. So we are told where he was staying. We're, we're told the people that he was with. He was with 600 men, but he was also with, with royalty, with the priest, the high priest. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 3, including uh, Ahijah, or the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, priest of the Lord of Shiloh, wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So we are told here in verse 3 specifically of Saul and who he is with. What is the author doing here? Don't miss this. Come in closer and get this. The author is painting a picture of Saul's spiritual malady, Saul's spiritual sickness. He wants you to see that Saul is not well spiritually. He wants you to see that. We, we notice exactly in chapter 13 that Saul provoked the Philistines and defeated the Philistines, a, a garrison, right? And then he's running for his life, and the people are afraid. They are so afraid. We notice as well in chapter 13, verse 13, that God removed his calling upon Saul. God says to Saul, no longer will you be king, right? That he is called someone else. And he did that through Samuel. But then what really portrayed Saul's problems here, because instead of Saul just crying out to God and asking for forgiveness, relying upon the mercy of God, that's not what he did. Saul resorted to his religious activities. Don't miss this. His religious activities. So what he did was he got all of the, the, the priests around him. He brought out the Ark of the Covenant. He got a priest to wear the ephod, which was basically an apron used by the priests to understand the will of God. So that the priest would put on the apron. He would go into the holies of holies or the tent where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he would spend time praying. And here we notice that Saul actually found this apron to put on the priest. But notice the priest as well. Who is the priest here? The priest is the grandson of Phineas, who was the son of Eli. What do we know about Eli's household? We know exactly in the earlier chapters when Eli and his son sinned against God, God rejected them. God said, no longer will y'all be a godly priest in my household. It was at that very moment when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines that Phineas's wife gave birth and named the son Ichabod, which basically means the glory of God has departed. Here is Ichabod's son, who is now, who is now a priest. So here we have it, that Saul, who've just been rejected by God, and then the household of Eli, who was rejected by God, are coming together, expecting God to listen to them. You get the irony here. Do you understand Saul's spiritual malady and sickness here? Instead of him just turning to God, knowing well 
that God had rejected the house of Eli. Now he's calling the priests over so that the priests can turn to God for him. Friends, what God is looking for, and this is a great application for us, what God is looking for from us is a broken and contrite heart, not our religious duties. So when we have sinned against a holy God, perhaps some of us, if not a lot of us, we say to ourselves, the only way that God is going to accept me if I just come to church all the time, if I read my Bible all the time, if I pray all the time, you know, if I do nice things for people, all of these things are important things. But if your heart, don't miss this, come in closer, if your heart is not right before God, they mean nothing. You get this. Saul is doing all of these things and getting the priests and getting the Ark of the Covenant and getting all of these things before him. But friends, notice this. What God wanted from Saul was a broken heart. That's not what we got. We fall in the same trap when we study theology without loving people. <laughs> same trap. When I love my theology... It is amazing, but is your theology causing you to love people? When we love to talk about praying, oh, I love to pray. I pray all the time, but then we never serve people. <laughs> What's the point? What's the point of doing all of these things when your heart is not moving for people? When you're not broken before God? The author's point here is to show Saul's spiritual condition and standing. One author, this is what he mentioned. Pay close attention to this. His own royal glory gone. Where else would we expect Saul to be than with a relative of glory gone? <laughs> He's right. But Saul replaced Samuel with the priests and the Ark of the Covenant, and he did his own thing. What about Jonathan? <laughs> oh, Jonathan. And this blessed my heart tremendously. And I've, I've read through 1 Samuel multiple times, but I never realized how amazing Jonathan was. I mean, Jonathan was a man of God, and he reminds me so much of David. No wonder. David saw him as a friend. No wonder they made a covenant together. And that covenant wasn't because, man, you're my homeboy, I'm your homeboy. It was because of God. It's because they feared God. That's what brought them together. They were lovers of God. So when you read of the fellowship of David and Jonathan in Scripture, it's because of their love for God. But I noticed this with Jonathan Jonathan is the polar opposite of his father. Instead of surrounding himself with priests and people of prestige, he has what? An armor bearer. <laughs> Someone just to carry his armor. That's what he had. Does not bring out the Ark of the Covenant. He doesn't do that. He goes directly to God. Directly to God. Jonathan is with one person, whereas Saul is with an army. And only Jonathan and Saul, according to 1 Samuel chapter 13, they are the only two that have swords and armor. In the entire nation of Israel, they are the only two. 
But what is Saul doing with his armor? He is covering it. He's sitting down and he's not fighting. What is Jonathan doing? Jonathan is revealing. Jonathan is ready to fight. And Jonathan is doing, making action here. He's ready to move. That's the difference between Jonathan here and Saul. Jonathan's faith was like a mustard seed and it acted. Whereas Saul's faith was little faith. It was tangible faith and nothing happened. Notice for me very carefully what Richard Phillips said. While Saul's pious inactivity inspires no help from the Lord, Jonathan's faith-driven initiative received God's mighty aid. Whereas Saul, the commander, publicly dishonored the Lord through fear-inspired disobedience, Jonathan the warrior would bring honor to the Lord through his fearless faith. What a difference! We see his conduct. And his conduct here was trusting God. A sense of boldness. A great sense of dependency. Jonathan had all reasons to stay back. Jonathan, it's just you and your armor bearer. Jonathan, you're going against a garrison of Philistines, perhaps 20, 30, 50 men. How in the world are you going to defeat these people by yourself? Your armor bearer, what can he do? That's great faith. When you're not able to see it, but you believe it. You believe what God has called you to do. You believe it based on his word. And this leads us into the second point. We see the conduct of his faith, but lean into the conviction of his faith. And this is powerful. The conviction of Jonathan's faith. Jonathan's faith fueled his conviction. I love what James mentioned in James chapter 2, verse 17. And also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But it was not so for Jonathan. Jonathan had great faith, and it showed itself in his conviction for the glory of God. So rather than him being inactive, we notice what Jonathan did. He took action. He took action. Don't miss this. Faith takes action. That is exactly what Jonathan did. He wanted to act not in his honor, but in the honor of God. Do, do, you, do you get this? In this passage of Scripture, Jonathan is not saying to God, well, God, you know what? I know you've taken, you've rejected my father as king. I understand that the kingship should go on to pass on to me. Uh, so God, here am I. I'm doing this, and don't forget me. That's not why Jonathan is doing this. As a matter of fact, friends, when Jonathan finds out that the person that God has blessed, God has rejected his father and God has accepted David, he befriended David. This is not a man with an ego for his own glory and honor. No, the conviction here for Jonathan was the glory of God. He wasn't concerned about his honor and his prestige. He was concerned about God's honor. How do you know this, Kevin? Notice in verse 1, he talks about the Philistines, and he talks about who they are all together. In verse 1, he says, Now it came, pass, it came to pass, 
Upon the day, Jonathan and the son of Saul said unto the young man that bear his armor, come and let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. Then in verse 6, excuse me, in verse 6, he added another word, a very important word for you to see. He called them the uncircumcised Philistines, which is a very important word here. As a matter of fact, this is the same word David used when he talked about Goliath. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26, And David said to the man who stood by, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? You see what David is concerned about, right? For who is the uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? This is what Jonathan is doing here. When he called the Philistines uncircumcised, he's saying, who are these ungodly people talking, harassing, and hurting God's covenant people? This is for the glory of God. This is for the name of God. So here we notice exactly what Jonathan is doing. What is his great conviction? His conviction is that God's name will be glorified. And friends, this is another great application for us. I think today in our churches, we are so idle. We see evil upon evil. We see a perversion, perversion of the gospel everywhere. We see blasphemy in God's name everywhere. And we are idle. We need to have the faith of Jonathan to speak, speak out against these things for the glory of God. When we see thousands of children dying in our own nation, yet we huddle up in our little churches and we are perfectly fine, and yet we're not praying against these things. We are not acting against these things. We are not like Jonathan. Jonathan is crying out for the glory of God. When we see children, children, young children as your children being sold, they're kidnapped and sold into sex slavery, even in New Orleans, which is what? An hour away from us. Hundreds of children. Yet we are idle. We are in our little cocoon, and we're not concerned about that. If we hear it in the news, if someone talks about it, we say, poor bet, poor bet. And that's all we do. That's all we do. But yet we are called to cry out like Jonathan. God, do something. Now, I'm not pointing fingers just like at you, because I got several coming back at me. And friends, honestly, this is an issue in our churches today. We need to be like Jonathan for the glory of God. When we hear people blaspheme in the name of God and we say silent because we do not want to be rejected, that's a problem. Christians, we must stand up. We must be bold. We must have great conviction. We must. And this is exactly what Jonathan does here. His great conviction, because he wanted God to be glorified. 
Jonathan's conviction came with challenges, many, many challenges, and we'll get into it. We'll observe these challenges, and these challenges are placed before, don't miss this, coming closer, coming closer, I love this. These challenges are placed before the one wielding the weapon of faith to have greater trust in God. God placed those challenges before Jonathan so that Jonathan would have great trust in him. Many times we say to ourselves, God, make my road and my path straight and, and smooth and everything is great. And we fail to understand that doesn't fuel our faith. What fuels our faith are the challenges that we face in our lives. The challenges you face is meant to fuel your faith to trust in God. And Jonathan had many challenges. The first challenge he had was his father. Do you notice in verse 1, Jonathan took his armor bearer and he walked out without telling his father. Why do you think Jonathan did not tell Saul where he was going? Because he knew that Saul would stop him. He knew that. He was on a mission. He had a great conviction. And he moved. And obstacle number one was daddy. In the same way, David had obstacles. You remember when David went to the camp of Israel? And he heard the uncircumcised Philistines blaspheming God's name. And David looked at the army who were wearied. And David said to them, why are you allowing these men to talk about God this way? And it was his brother who said to him, David, what are you doing here? Go home, boy. <laughs> you can imagine that David struggled with the same thing. Your family members can discourage you from having that faith in God. Your family members can stifle. And here we notice that Saul was a problem. But not only that, the second thing was David was out, uh, Jonathan was outnumbered. At least his father had 600 soldiers. Jonathan had only one person, and he was an armor bearer. He wasn't even a soldier. He was outnumbered. That's challenge number two. Challenge number three was what he saw, what he saw. So here's Jonathan going to fight against the Philistines, and he saw two crags. And what he noticed here was Moses and Sina, or Sine. Those crags basically became a major issue for Jonathan because, as a matter of fact, they were very difficult for people to actually get there. It was very difficult for them to get to that point. As a matter of fact, Moses basically means slippery, and Sine basically means thorny. So it was a crag that was very difficult for people to get up and, and, and to be able to fight against the Philistines. So it, it was specifically set up where people won't come against them. So here's Jonathan noticing a very impossible task. How in the world will I get up there? How well in the world will I face these people? It wasn't an easy situation for him to just walk into camp and destroy the Philistines. No, it's what he saw. It's what he saw. So he looked at something very impossible, and he turned to God, and God made it possible. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. I absolutely love this. I love this. This place was situated several miles north of Jerusalem, and yet we notice that Jonathan had great faith. Great faith. 
I love how the author of Hebrews defined faith for us. Hebrews 11.1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Help me out. The conviction of things not seen. <laughs> Jonathan is not able to see any victory here, but, but, but he did spiritually because of God's word, because of God's promises. He did. Notice what he mentioned, and notice a conviction of Jonathan. This is his conviction. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Wow. Boy, they need to make a movie about Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, the gladiator, he has this famous quote. This will be Jonathan's famous quote. The Lord can move mightily by many or by few. And in Jonathan's situation, by two. God, move. God, do something amazing for your glory. And God will. God will. Why? Why is it that Jonathan has such great faith in God? Don't, don't miss this. Please come in closer. This is for you. This is for you. You know why? Because of the word of God. Those of you, not you're not reading your word, you're not studying your word, the Bible doesn't mean a thing to you. The only time you open your Bible is when you come to church. You are missing out because that word helps to fuel your faith and your conviction. It does. Do you notice what the Apostle Paul mentioned in Romans chapter 15, verse 4? Notice very carefully what he says. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. The Scripture encourages you to have hope. And it encouraged Jonathan to have hope. You know, Jonathan was thinking not too long ago, his, his grandparents, his parents, what they experienced. He, he has the stories before him. Ehud, he, he remembered the story of Ehud, who went into the stronghold of Eglon and Moab and slain the oppressor of God's people. He has stories about Gideon and Samson. And I really, really do think, I really do think, and some commentators believe the same thing, and the more I read, the more I'm seeing it, I really think that Jonathan is thinking about Gideon here. And he, here's the reason why. There's a lot of similarities here. He, he perhaps is thinking about Gideon and how God delivered his people, right, through Gideon. The Midianites came against God's people, and it was Gideon that God used to rescue his people. And if you remember the story, that Gideon himself was, was what, what was he doing? He, he, was, he was afraid and he hid among the wine press. Many scholars believe all the caves, especially the cave that Saul was hiding in, was made by these people in that time because many of the Israelites were very afraid and they were hiding. And here's Gideon hiding in the Lord's spoke to Gideon and told Gideon to go and fight against the enemies of God's people. He had 30,000. God said, no. Then he brought it down to a low, and God said, no. And God said, 300 people. And God used 300 people to defeat the 
the enemies of Israel. And when Jonathan says here, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few, he perhaps was thinking about Gideon. Not thousands, but 300. And now God used two for your glory. What an amazing story here. An amazing faith. Friends, notice with me very carefully. As we notice this, this comparison suggests, and I'm talking about a comparison with Gideon and Jonathan, it suggests that one way for us to strengthen our faith is to consider our situation mirrors that of others in the Bible. It does. There's nothing new under the sun. Whatever you're going through, you can find a character in Scripture who has been through it. And you could identify with them. You can identify with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You can identify with them. These young men were brought into a very secular culture. And instead of them following that culture, they stayed true to the word of God and God Bless them. You can identify with Joseph in the house of Potiphar when his wife tried to make an advancement, a sexual advancement, that Joseph flee from sexual immorality. You can. You can identify with Rahab. That when she heard all of those stories about Yahweh and many of her people in Jericho believe it was just fables, she believed it was true. And she got saved from hearing about Yahweh, how Yahweh saved this people. You can identify with Esther. That as we read about Esther, that Esther put aside her prestige, put aside her money, her wealth, put aside all of these things and risk that for the glory of God and his people. Friends, you can identify. You can. This is the beauty of the word of God. And this is why we read the word of God. Read the Old Testament. Read how God interacted with his people. And God desires to interact with you in the same way. This is exactly what Jonathan did. That's what he did. He had the word. But not just people of the Bible, but we can also identify with brothers and sisters in church history. I think of William Carey, who launched a generation of missions with this message. And notice what William Carey mentioned, a temp great things for God, expect great things from God. <laughs> Attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. That's exactly what Jonathan did. What an amazing thing that we have. Think of William Wilberforce when he faced the political forces of England to stump out the trading of slaves. This man believed in the things of God and the word of God. And although he was being persecuted, thank God for William Wilberforce, 
that we no longer have slavery in America and England. Thank God for him. By the way, Guy, you are right. <laughs> he knows what I'm talking about. George Mueller considered the vast plight of the orphans in the 19th century of England. And he prayed and prayed and prayed and believed great things from God. And God used George Mueller through his powerful prayer and faith to accomplish an amazing thing in England. He housed thousands of orphans because of his prayers. So we have examples in scripture. We have examples in church history. We even have examples among us of brothers and sisters who persisted. But not only that, friends, let's look at this third, the third point, the boldness of faith. We see this in Jonathan's life as well. So here it is that Jonathan made it to the Philistines, he's seeing all these crags and he's realizing to himself, how in the world will I get there? It's thorny, it's slippery. But notice his boldness. Notice his boldness. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 7, and his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, with you, heart and soul. Here's another contrast between Saul and Jonathan, you remember earlier on when Saul's father's donkeys ran away, that his servant, he had a servant with him, but it was his servant leading him rather than Saul leading his servant. It was his servant saying to him, hey, Saul, there is a seer. There is a prophet. Why don't we go to him? But what is Jonathan doing here? He is leading his servant. He is leading his servant. There, there is a, a great contrast between Saul and Jonathan. And we see it's because of faith. There's a noticeable difference here. But notice this in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 8 through 10. And Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them in our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. Another great sign of great faith. Jonathan's like, God's going to give them to us. They're looking at Jonathan and the armor bearer, and they said, look at the Hebrews. Come, let us teach you something. Jonathan walks up to them. As a matter of fact, he crawls. The text says to us, he's on his hands and on his knees. And he got to where they were and killed 20 of them. The ones he wounded, the armor bearer finished off. It was the power of God. How is it possible that one man can do such great things? Well, just say one and a half. His armor bearer is just a half. <laughs> how? How is it possible that he can do this. It's because of bold faith. The prayer of the righteous avails much. God uses our challenges around us to cause us to depend upon him and to cry out to him. Where is your boldness in your faith? Trust in God. Believe in God. 
like Jonathan did. Believe in him. Believe in him for the salvation of your family members. Believe in him that people will be saved around you. Believe in him for the salvation of your spouse and your children. Believe and pray and seek his face. We need to have that boldness. But not only that, notice with me the final point here. What is the final point here? The rally of faith. We've seen the conduct of faith. We've seen the conviction of faith. We've seen the boldness of faith. And finally, we see what? The rally of faith. Faith is so infectious. It really is. That it will rally people who trust in God to move and to act. The first person we see here is Saul. Notice where Saul was. He was sitting down in the earlier verses, and now he's standing up, taking action. Hmm. Why is that? Because of Jonathan. Although it's problematic what Saul is doing here, right? We still see a lack of faith because here is the priest, right? With his robe, his apron, praying. And Saul is so impatient because he wants God to speak to him. God's not speaking. And he tells the servant, he tells the priest, cease, stop, let's go. No longer I want to hear God speak because God's not speaking. Let's move. Again, it shows where Saul is, the spiritual sickness in Saul altogether. But nevertheless, Saul is moving. Why? Because of Jonathan. He's no longer fearful. Why? Because of Jonathan. Jonathan's faith caused great things to happen. And friends, so we can see the faith of one person can change a whole group. Do you get this? Your faith in your family can bring about a great change in your family. You know, I think of my family, and I cannot think of any Christian in my family tree, right? I can go all the way up to my great-grandmother, and I cannot think of anyone. And even my family right now, my extended family, I could think of three or four of them. Not many. And I'm thinking to myself, well, God, how, how can I make a difference? I did not grow up with a godly father to teach me how to be a godly father. I have to learn this on my own. And I'm, I'm learning a lot of mistakes, a lot of mistakes. But my prayer is, God, my faith is real. And use it to change my family tree. Save my children. Save my grandchildren. I'm not praying for them to be doctors and lawyers. I'm praying for them to be saved. And God, use them in the mission field. God, use them in this society. God, use them any way that you can. If you want to use them as a doctor or lawyer, do. But most importantly, I'm not concerned about the money they will make. I'm concerned about their hearts pursuing you. But friends, this is what we do. This is how we pray. This is what we must pray. One person can make a difference. We can make a difference in our family tree. We can make a difference in our family's legacy just by trusting in God, just by trusting in God. But don't miss this. Secondly, I want you to see not just Saul, but we also have the Hebrews. They had some Hebrews who were following the Philistines, and those Hebrews were going against the Israelites because they were so fearful. When they heard about Jonathan, 
and what God did through Jonathan. Those Hebrews decided, you know what? I realized my skin color. I realized my culture. I'm a Hebrew, so I'm going to fight against the Philistines. <laughs> I mean, seriously, that these people betrayed their own people. Who knows the amount of people they slaughtered, the amount of Israelites they killed with the Philistines. But when God moved through the faith of a mustard seed, they were moved to act. And third, the men who were hiding in caves came out of their caves. <laughs> That's what genuine faith does. That's what bold faith does. That's what faith that rallies does. It causes people who are hiding to now come and fight. And this is exactly what happened here. They got out of their caves and they came and fought with the Israelites, fought with uh, Jonathan, fought with Saul. And we will know exactly what God will do. So friends, as I close, I do want you to get this. There was a man by the name of John Knox, a Scottish reformer. And John Knox was persecuted in Scotland and he was exiled in Geneva. A man of great faith. He was ministered or mentored by John Calvin, experienced the power of God in his society, returned back to his homeland. He boldly advanced a reformation cause, sending forth the gospel message in Scotland. And great things were accomplished through the faith of John Knox. But you might ask yourself, how was that accomplished? Well, John Knox answered this question for us. This is what he said in his words. He said, one man with God is always in the majority. Did you get that? John Knox's word with these. This is what he said. One man with God is always in the majority. This is exactly Jonathan's disposition as it was John Knox and so it must be ours. Are you alone at your work proclaiming the gospel or one is enough? You're in the majority. Are you alone in your home proclaiming the gospel? God's with you. Have faith of a mustard seed. Are you alone? Proclaim the glories of God and believe in God. Have the faith of Jonathan. Join me as we pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you. We worship you as we observe Jonathan's faith. Jonathan's faith was great because the object of his faith was you. So God, I pray that we don't look at our circumstances, we don't look at our gifts, we don't look at our talents, but we see a big God who can do great things. So let you be the object of our faith and grow our faith, O oh Lord. We love you, we worship you, and we thank you. Amen.